Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're having a conversation in Ukraine, talking to David about what it's like to multiply disciples in a war zone. First, I came out here in 1994. I was a young student. I came out with an evangelist uh, called Vic Jacobson. It was three years after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and there were so many opportunities out here. So we were looking for opportunities to uh, to help people physically and spiritually. And uh, that trip just transformed my life. I remember going into a prison here. Um, in central Ukraine, and seeing this group of prisoners whose lives had been transformed inside this prison, the most desperate, dark conditions. And I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but I could see Jesus on their faces. And that transformed my life. And through that experience, I recommitted my life uh, to Jesus and just fell in love with Ukraine uh, through that trip and started working sort of part time studying at university and also working for this uh, British evangelist. Um, and his ministry was just starting off here in Ukraine. So traveling up to Ukraine several times a year. Um, and um, our work was focused on four areas, prisons, orphanages, hospitals, and churches, and doing on humanitarian aid. And uh, during those trips, um, I met a girl and her name was Katia. She was one of the translators uh, that we were using. She was quite young. I think she was 17 when I first met her. Um, and we just got on really well. Um, um, at the beginning, there's nothing nothing more than that. She was just translating and, and, mm. and that was great. And then we sort of, you know, uh, um, in fact, I was here for five weeks one time on a sort of on a longer term assignment and we just fell in love and got in this relationship that was um back in those days just a very different how things are today you know i'll go back to england and i'd write letter uh, send it through the post you know it would take several weeks to arrive if it arrived at all and then in theory she would get it and then she would write and send the letter back and so we're talking months without conversation no instant messaging or anything you know the days before internet just a whole different level of sort of relationship so we fell in love and um, I got engaged to be married and then the decision was would I bring Katya to England which was the logical thing to do because at the time um, most Ukrainians just wanted to get out of Ukraine and they didn't see any hope or opportunities here or would I move out to Ukraine and um, I don't know, I just, I'm a bit strange. And so I quite happily um, I moved out to Ukraine. I'd fallen over the country, I'd fallen over with Katia. So the end of 1998, I moved out here and I've been here ever since. Um, yeah. And you have, a, you have a, a family, a growing family, I guess. <laughs> That's right, yes. So we have uh, three children. Uh, so Timothy right now, he's 17, Daniela's 15, and Susanna, she's eight. Um, and um, 
Uh, yeah, pretty much our ministry, all the things we've involved in, has sort of evolved in line with our children. You know, so depending on their needs, that has then, um, in some respects, guided our ministry. So, for example, when Katia had our first first child, Timothy, you know, um, and that first baby, it's like, I mean, most people think that would sort of take them out of ministry completely. But no, uh, Katia, she started up a group of the mothers with their little babies, and they would gather at our home. It's called the Teddy Bear Club. And so um, I guess we always saw new opportunities, you know, through having children. It wasn't like they were going to get in the way of ministry at all, but we would sort of just reshape our ministry around our children. So as they got older, we would then obviously do do older projects for older children, um, I guess primarily to help our own children, but obviously there was a big, big benefit for other children as well. So um, at the very beginning of our ministry, we were doing a lot of humanitarian aid because um, people, they really did need uh, the help. And uh, we used to bring teams of people from England um, and from America to come and do camps. We would you know, bring the resources, the program, the finances. And it was great. And of course, the Ukrainians loved it. Um, and the Ukrainians would think, great, when are you going to come again? Um, and I always thought, well, this was a bit a bit strange or a bit, it didn't sound quite right because um, I felt, why couldn't Ukrainians actually do something good themselves? So why do we have to wait for the teams coming from abroad to come and do good stuff? Why do we have to just rely on um, on support, financial support from abroad. Why couldn't we do something ourselves? And also this humanitarian aid, you know, it was great. It was very useful. People were very appreciative. And they would just uh, sit around and wait for the next load of aid to come. Um, and I was thinking, why can't they do anything to help themselves? Mm. And so um, we stepped away from that um, humanitarian sort of ministry and start to explore opportunities for business because uh, it was important for us uh, to give people jobs so they could earn their own salaries so they wouldn't be dependent um, on the West. And then uh, the key thing about these businesses um, was generating profits that we could then fund our own ministries. So again, we wouldn't have to rely on the West. And I think as a British person here in Ukraine, you know, I'll be honest, um, I didn't have any, I don't have any um, business experience from Britain or from anywhere, but I have this sort of a slight mentality to Ukrainians that uh, there are opportunities and are we going to make it work? And so things that seem just simple to me, sort of income, expenditure and profit are quite new to Ukrainians, it seems. Mm. You know, so just bringing a, a British mentality into Ukrainian environment has enabled us um, over the last 20-something years to do many different uh, business projects, um, to generate funds, to support many different ministry projects uh, that we have also been doing. I mean, it's interesting um, being here for so long, um, in fact, 20 24 years is my 24th year now. Um, thinking back to the very beginning, you know, we just had a little home group. Um, it was in English because I didn't understand the language here. We invited some friends who spoke English 
uh, just some young people, just young people who went to school, school children. They spoke a bit of English, and so we got to know them you know, 24 years ago. And as I look around at what we're doing right now, we have a team of about 50 people um, working in our team, and so many of them are those young people that we started working with 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Um, um, just be able to see how God has been working through their lives um, over over those years and see them grow and develop. And I think at the beginning, they never had any hopes or dreams. And that was something I noticed about Ukraine. But now we've seen people um, with great hopes um, and great dreams. And that's even more true uh, today with the challenges that Ukraine is going through. Mm. Um, so obviously we've seen, like God has been so faithful, we've seen many uh, blessings um, over the years. Um, people coming to know Jesus, uh, faith being strengthened through challenges. We've had a lot of challenges, you know. Um, uh, nothing that comes easy, I've noticed. I guess that's that true in life but it's especially true here just um, a different culture um, like the legacy of the Soviet Union in the, in the older generations uh, still affects um, how things work and how people think but there's this a younger generation of people that we are I mean, trying to focus on that to share opportunities um, um in terms of their faith, in terms of their relationship with God, well, that can be a really, really sort of um, really personal thing because you see the majority of people in Ukraine would associate themselves with the Orthodox Church. and um, um, But that doesn't equate to a really personal relationship with Jesus. Instead, it, it equates to a, a relationship with God through a priest um, and big celebrations Easter and Christmas that would be when they would uh, go to the the Orthodox churches light a candle and that would be the extent of their faith so they all believe in God but he doesn't affect their lives on a day-to-day basis so today is actually day 195 of the war for us and and the war has transformed our lives um, and transformed the lives of but millions of people here in Ukraine. Um, so how has it changed everything for us? Our focus has moved from a lot of social and ministry projects for different subcultures inside our city into um, helping a displaced people, people who have either lost their homes, their cities have been bombed, they've escaped, literally the rockets that are flying over them on a day-to-day basis, Um, or they have fled in fear of uh, the potential consequences of these rockets. Um, So right from the very beginning of the war, more than six months ago, we... We opened up our properties at the offices we have 
resources we have to provide short-term accommodation for displaced people that are fleeing. Um, it tends to be um, in Ukraine, people were moving from east to west. Um, many of them potential refugees as soon as they entered Europe. Europe's very welcoming to Ukrainians. And so millions, literally millions of people left the country and um, kind of en route stopped off with us. We we're in central Ukraine. So it was a like a stopping off point. And they just turned up in, in their cars and cars with like um, um, broken windscreens. And you could see the other gunshots that had sort of gone into their cars. The cars have signs like on children as if it was making a difference. Um, and they would turn up with just and the things on just the clothes on their back, you know. So I mean, didn't even have time to collect their possessions. They were literally fleeing at the war. Now, at the beginning of the war, it was it was quite a challenging time, quite a scary time, because you see, we had troops advancing on Kiev, and we we're just uh, two hours south of Kiev, and so there was a lot of uncertainty as to what was going to happen and how you know, how quickly it was all all going to just going to fold. Ukrainians, as I know, they've got this stubborn mentality. Some people call it bravery, courage. Um, and from day one, they were determined to fight and to defend the freedoms that they have been, um, been fighting for for many years. You know, since the independence of Ukraine, we've had uh, two revolutions. The first one was a peaceful uh, the second one was sadly about a hundred people were killed, and we were shocked. We were just devastated, you know, to see in our capital people dying. And now, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of people that have lost their lives, and literally millions have been displaced. So, at the very beginning, it was like, as a family, you know, as a father, three children and wife. It's like, okay, well, the logical thing is going to be to leave. I mean, mm-hmm. the British Embassy have been saying, you know, for months, get out of the country, you know. But again, I'm kind of stubborn. Well, I'm not just stubborn. I just have a real heart for Ukraine and, and our team that we've been working with, you know, for 24 years, you know, we couldn't leave them, you know. And a guard called me uh, to Ukraine. Okay, to marry Katya, and um, not just to just when things are fine, and then if things get hard, we're going to leave. That was never the deal that I remember. God made with me or my, what I made with God, and so for me, when things got hard, the war started, the dangers. That's the time to step up. That's not a time mm-hmm. to escape. Because people need God even more, and they're open to God during a desperate times of, of a challenge of death and destruction and, and darkness. That is when they need to see, to experience the light. So all of our team, um, a lot of our businesses, I just went on pause and we reconfigured everything 
to step up to help these people by providing short-term accommodation and clothing and toiletries and food for these people as they were passing through. And then things started to change into a different phase. You know, people were going, going west and the west was getting full up. There was literally just nowhere for people to go. And a lot of people would actually start staying here in, um, in our city. And um, so we started handing out these food parcels once a week. We did it every Thursday. A very simple food parcel, maybe um, costing no more than 20 US dollars, um, just basic food supplies. Uh, so the first week we gave out 50, and then I think it was 170, and then 200, and then every week it got more and more. We got up to 500, and we said that was our limit. And then we went up to 700, and we said that was our limit. And so it takes quite a lot of resources and, um, to do these things. And so every Thursday we were getting literally hundreds, over, over a thousand people lining up outside our offices to get these food parcels, people that desperately need this food to survive. And so our, um, to cut a long story short, the um, military administration of our city stopped us, banned us, or politely asked us to stop doing it <laughs> because of the dangers of having thousands of people concentrated in one place when there are rockets literally flying over our city and air raid sirens are going off. And even today, this morning, um, pretty much every day we have air raid sirens. And... Um, experience showed in other cities, you know, um, places where people were congregating, sadly, were being targeted. Mm. And so we agreed to stop this handout of food parcels. And we had to rethink how we were going to provide this help. And it was, it was definitely, it was a God thing. At the time, it was so frustrating, you know, it's like, uh, how can we help these people? And there are thousands of people needing help. Mm. And we were frustrated that we couldn't keep doing it in the way that we thought was best. So we changed everything and we started doing discovery Bible groups. And this was just a transformation in terms of how we worked. Um, you see, we are, as Christians, um, we want to be different from just any other humanitarian organization. Um, and at that time, there weren't really organizations that were actually handing out food. Um, but we wanted to not just show Jesus through these handouts, but actually bring people to Jesus so they could experience, experience him. And at the end of the day, that was never going to happen if we were just going to hand out food parcels to hundreds of thousands of people, you know, just outside of offices. So the idea of like changing to these TBS groups, these uh, Discovery Bible Study groups, it was a, it's kind of like the light bulb goes on and, mm. and, and this is what we need to do. 
So we started a system of online registration. We've got all these displaced people to register online. I think give us all their details, who they were, where they're from, how many people in their families, and to list the needs, uh, the physical needs that they had. And then we'd send send out text messages to a group of, um, i say maybe uh, 70 or 80 people to come to our offices at a specific time, at a specific date, and um, um, to receive help. And we would invite them in into a big hall, sitting around tables, tea and coffee. On each table, we'd have a table leader. I'd talk to them, find out how they're doing, find out the needs, and say, okay, we want to, you know, we want to help you. Is it okay if we can just read the Bible together? Um, and, and the great thing about the, and the whole DBS process is, is very simple. We didn't need to like train up our table leaders uh, for, for weeks before they were confident enough to do it. Many of them had been doing DBS groups anyway before the war as part of our ministry. And we found these displaced people were so open to um, I'm just reading the Bible in the simple way that the Discovery Bible studies um, where they do. So just choose a short passage at the beginning. It was always the passage of Jesus in the in the boat um, with the disciples when the storm was going on mm. and the disciples were really afraid and Jesus comes to the storm. That was our sort of the first first passage that we did. Um, and um, it's very simple, you know, what can we see through this passage? What does it tell us about people? What does it tell us about God? If it's true, what does it mean? What is it going to change? And then who are you going to tell about? About what you've heard. So we do this with them, and then we give them a food parcel, and then we would reset the room and invite the next set of people. And so pretty much every day we were doing about 200 people, about 30 DBS groups, um, about 120 groups a week, and led by our team of volunteers. And um, people, um, there was some, some opposition, but the majority of people were quite happy to do it. They were like hungry for finding out more about, about who this Jesus guy was. And then we started sort of identifying specific people, displaced people that would lead the groups themselves. So we wouldn't have to rely on our team of volunteers. Um, and so um, some people were happy to step up and want to do the groups. And so since the start of the war, we've had probably closer to about 2,000 uh, DBS groups that have, uh, have gone on um, in our in our um, in our buildings and then a couple of months ago we actually stopped uh, giving out food parcels it was again this issue of we can't feed thousands of people for the rest of their lives and they need to we need to help them find opportunities to stand on their own two feet. And so we stopped doing food parcels. 
But we kept inviting people to come to us. And we say, come to us mm. um, at a certain time. Come and read the Bible with us. But we're not going to give you any help. And we made it very clear that we wouldn't be handing out any help. And it's very interesting to see the numbers of people that would still come. We weren't quite sure how it's going to work, but it worked out. If you look at the statistics, between 12 and 15% of the people that we invited came back for the Discovery Bible study groups knowing that they wouldn't be getting any physical help. So we would invite, for example, 300 people to come back and we'd get maybe 40, 40 people coming back, so um, just four or five groups. So we'd always invite so much more than we could actually cope with because we knew that, I guess we guessed the majority wouldn't come. Um, and then we would focus on the people that wanted to come. We'd track it all on our online database, who was coming, how often they were coming. Um, and um, that was really encouraging. And so the older, there were statistics that 12 or 15% of people were and are open to Jesus, mm -hmm. even though they're not getting any physical help. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, yeah. So right now we're just moving to the next stage because uh, we weren't happy with um, when you invite a certain certain number of people that restricts who can come. The only ones that are going to come are the ones who are invited, and yet there are tens of thousands of people in our city. And so now we're just switching to uh, twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday evenings, and we have an open door policy. And we advertise, we say anyone can come. It doesn't even have to be displaced people. Anyone can come on a Tuesday evening, on a Thursday evening, come to read the Bible, do these DBS groups. We're also offering other types of help, psychological first aid help with a team, helping people dealing with trauma. Um, and we also have some physical help that we can provide toiletries as well if if people are in desperate need food parcels we have um, the opportunity if people are in desperate need of food to providing that but we make it clear that um, anyone can come on a tuesday or a wednesday a thursday evening to read the bible with us through these dbs groups and this is the first week we've been doing it so today is actually tuesday <laughs> and tonight we've got our first First, um, first time, and so we don't know how many people come. So uh, many different stories of people's lives that have been transformed through these groups, people that we have got to know um, and have really um, now become part of our community here. So there was a girl called Lena. Um, I remember seeing her. Um, first of all, she used to just come to receive help with her husband and, and their son, their young son. Um, and then she started helping out. She started, she wanted to do something. So she said, I want to help. And she started just helping to serve tea and coffee to other groups. I wanted my team, he said, 
know, she's so keen. I think I think she can can lead a group. I said, well, great. And in fact, I'm on my desktop on my computer. I have a photo that he sent. Um, and he said, David, look, there's Lena. She's leading a DBS group. Through those experiences, she gave her life to Jesus. Um, and we planned to baptize her in, in two weeks' time. Her life has just been transformed um, through these DBS groups. Um, so first, she comes to receive help. The next step, she takes part in a DBS group. The next step, she just serves tea and coffee these groups next step she leads a group next step she makes a commitment and to serve to follow jesus and she'll be baptized and she's got a job with us and the son's going to our school so her life has been transformed so the challenge for us is how to get this into into a movement philosophy into multiplication because Sure, we can invite people and we can say, okay, come and, and do DBS groups and come read the Bible, and are they ready to do that? The challenge is how to get them to do that on their own. But we haven't solved that yet. We haven't seen these groups sort of voluntarily just meeting outside of our buildings. So we don't have all the answers. Um, mm-hmm. but that is our, that's our aim, so that it's not just dependent on us, so it will multiply. And the other thing that we're hoping on you know, is that at some point this war is going to end, and in theory people are going to go back to their homes or what's left of their homes, they can rebuild them. And so it's almost like the experiences they can have here is this potential for thousands of people to get the experiences and then go out across Ukraine back to their homes. And um, that has the potential to create a movement um, because they won't be concentrated in one place. So our team will work on how best we can empower them, encourage them, so that um, they'll be ready to go back and not just rebuild their homes, but um, share with their friends and community there the uh, things God has been doing in their lives. Um, We just want to be used by God in the midst of this uh, terrible situation. There's an amazing um, example of how God has been so faithful in terms of our city. Uh, we really do believe that so many people have been praying for our, our city, for our ministry, that there is what we call this dome of protection over our city. And what this means is that we've had rockets flying over us, we've had rockets um, be landing just outside our city. Not one single rocket has landed on our city since the start of the war. Now, that's an amazing testimony. And I'm sure we could list a whole load of physical reasons as to why that happened. 
And yet, if people over the world have been praying for our city, then I want to say, well, that is because God is protecting our city. And it's not just so we can be safe and everything's fine. It's so that we can focus on the help that we can provide for all these people whose cities have actually been bombed and whose homes have actually been bombed. So it's a real it's a real blessing and that continues to this day. Um, and we'll see. Um, we still get the sirens. They still mm-hmm. go off. But we don't protect them Well, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the Movements podcast, why not leave us a review or spread the word on social media? I'm Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.